Hey everybody, this is Stuart, and uh, we're here with a special episode of Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. And uh, the reason it's special is it's actually the first episode of a brand new show called Ask Dr. Fish. And what that's going to be is that Teach Me, Teach Me About the Great Lakes is not going anywhere, but Ask Dr. Fish is going to be a new kind of live streaming show that we do every other month. It's going to stream live on YouTube in the, uh, I think, the second Monday of the month at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and then we'll release it as a podcast a week or two later. And so it's going to be its own podcast. You can subscribe to it at askdrfish.transistor.fm or just search your podcast thing for Ask Dr. Fish. Um, but we're releasing this one as an episode of Teach Me About the Great Lakes. In the future, we're not sure if we're going to keep dropping them in the Teach Me About the Great Lakes feed or if 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 not. Uh, if you have any thoughts on that, please send us an email, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. But uh, regardless, we're really excited about this show um, because it's super fun talking with Katie and Titus, and uh, they're so knowledgeable, and we're glad to get to you know talk about fish every couple of months or so. So uh, we appreciate you listening to this show. We hope that you like Dr. Fish as well, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, yet another episode. In this case, it'll be the uh, Lake House of Terror too. So that should be a lot of fun. Anyway, we have a great rest of the year planned. Thank you so much for listening. Go vote for the Lakeys. Uh, that's uh, bit.ly.com slash Lakeys22, capital L, Lakeys22. Submit some things for the Lakeys Awards and um, we'll see you all down the line. Thanks for listening. And of course, keep grading those lakes. Do lamprey taste like chicken? Why are there dead fish watching up on the shore? Where do Great Lake salmon go during that special time of year? To find out, Let's ask Dr. Fish. That's right. It's Ask Dr. Fish, a brand new streaming show from uh, Gobi Dog Media, Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, and uh, Wisconsin Sea Grant. We're so happy to be here for this, our very first episode. My name is Stuart Carlton. I apologize for my voice. I'm getting over a non-COVID cold. And I forgot about getting sick. Just plain old getting sick, because it's been like two years, it stinks. And then getting sick the weekend before you're launching your new live show, not ideal, but that's where we are. Anyway, my name is Sir Carlton. With Illinois Nina Seagrand, I want to introduce our two doctors, Fish. First of all, we have Katie O'Reilly. Katie, how's it going? It is going great, Stuart. I am so excited to talk about all things Fish today. I am also excited to talk about it. Katie O'Reilly, she is our aquatic invasive species specialist. We're very happy to announce at Illinois Nina Seagram. We also have Titus Seilheimer here. Titus, also a Dr. Fish. How's it going, Titus? Good morning. It's uh, great. Another great day talking about fish. Another great day talking about fish. And then finally, last but certainly not least, we have the finest research coordinator in all the Seagram Network, Carolyn Foley. How's it going, Carolyn? I am doing well, and thank you for that kind introduction, but I will clarify, I am not a Dr. Fish. Not a Dr. Fish. That's okay, neither am I. It's it's fine. Uh, we, we have two Dr. Fish, those will try to take us through the day. Great. So uh, this is our very first episode. It's going to be a new live streaming episode that will be on the second Monday of every month at 11. You can join us here on YouTube. Uh, the link might change around for the first few weeks. We will figure out what it's going to look like and let you know. Um, and then, uh, you know, these first few times, it's going to be a little bit shaggy, right? This is a Gobi Dog Media production. That means it's going to be a little bit shaggy. Uh, it's going to be a little bit by the seat of the pants. And, and um, 
you know, for people who like us, that's one thing they like about us. And for people who don't like it, well, there's a very limiting factor. Um, and we're just dealing with that as far as we can. And so the idea is that, um, you know, we're going to stream this live every month. And then what we'll do is we'll also release it as a podcast. And so you can go to askdrfish.transistor.fm to subscribe to the podcast or just look in your uh, podcast reader, feeder, feeder, reader, podcast player. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where you'll see it. And you can also, though, if you are joining us live, go ahead and use the, uh, you can either type into the chat box on YouTube or on Twitter, you can use the hashtag AskDrFish, and we'll be monitoring that to take your live questions. So if you want to, you know, completely derail the show, I highly recommend it. And this is your chance to do it. Um, because, you know, there's no fish question, no science question, no life question that is too hard for our doctor's fish. Well, let's get going right away. And this first, uh, this first um, uh, uh, question, I think, comes straight from Lake Michigan itself. So there's a new story about um, sending lamprey over to the UK because people like to eat pies in the UK. Um, so a uh, Michigan man is preparing to ship invasive blood-sucking lamprey over to England because they enjoy it there. So question for the doctor's fish. Have you eaten lamprey before? I can jump in first. I have not eaten lamprey, uh, but I would be interested to hear if Titus has, because I do wonder if it tastes like chicken. Yeah, unfortunately, I have not eaten lamprey either, but I definitely would be up for trying to eat some lamprey. Um, I have, I've heard you know, some rumors about uh, preparation techniques in, in the Great Lakes that people do. Um, but I have not had that opportunity yet. What type of preparation techniques have you heard about in the Great Lakes? Um, so this, uh, this is from uh, Lars Redstrom at uh, Cornell University, uh, scientist there. Um, and he will, uh, I think, you kind of parboil it first, and then you can peel the skin off you don't want to eat that. And then you can just chop it up into kind of chunks because uh, it's a cartilaginous fish. So you don't have to worry about bones. Uh, and then you can kind of cook that uh, in like a stew, lamprey stew. So yeah, popular, popular in Portugal, I believe. That's how they eat them over there. Interesting. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about a couple of countries in Europe. Um, so what's the deal with lampreys in the Great Lakes? That is a multi-layered question. So first kind of aspect is what kind of lampreys are you talking about? Because when we say like these blood sucking, you know, parasites, often people are talking about the non-native sea lamprey, uh, which is obviously a, a big threat to the Great Lakes. It entered into the lakes, uh, you know, via some of the canals that were built because it's native to the Atlantic coast. Uh, when it came to the Great Lakes, it caused a lot of problems because they obviously are parasitic and they attach to some of the top predator fish and can actually cause a lot of damage. They, you know, really did a number on the lake trout populations in the mid 20th century in the Great Lakes. But there, we also have native lamprey species, which a lot of people don't know about. There's four other species of lamprey that are much smaller, um, but are native to the lakes, and not all of them are parasitic. Some of them don't attach to other fish uh, when they're adults. And so, you know, yes, sea lamprey, what's the deal with sea lamprey is uh, they're bad. They, you know, have had really negative effects on the Great Lakes ecosystems, but not all lampreys are sea lampreys. 
Okay. Yeah. I was going to just, uh, you know, talking about sea lampreys in the great lakes, um, they are, uh, you know, really peak populations, uh, kind of hit the great lakes with sea lamprey in the, the mid 20th century. Um, and Katie mentioned, you know, really big impacts on lake trout and, you know, for Lake Michigan by kind of the 1950s, uh, mid 1950s, late 1950s, lake trout are extirpated. They're, they're basically locally extinct from Lake Michigan. Sea lamprey, uh, play a, a large role in that. And, uh, you know, at sort of peak, peak population levels of sea lamprey, it was hundreds of thousands per lake. And the, the math you can do on that is one adult sea lamprey to get to kind of adult size, uh, they will kill about 40 pounds of fish. So, um, you know, you can do the math there are hundreds of thousands, um, that was, you know, that's millions of pounds of fish uh, kind of being lost to sea lamprey predation around the Great Lakes. And that that's, uh, you know, big ecological and uh, economic impacts. So question about the lamprey that are being eaten um, in the Great Lakes and the ones, are they eating the native species or the invasives or both? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely... Uh, it is the sea lamprey, the invasive sea lamprey. And they have, uh, you know, others have looked at actually, could sea lamprey be an export from the Great Lakes? Because they, you know, historically have been very abundant. And so Europeans would like to eat them. We don't want them in the Great Lakes. And uh, the the challenge here is uh, mercury levels, especially Lake Superior Sea lamprey just have kind of bonkers levels of mercury um, for whatever reason. I mean, they are top, top predators, so they are feeding on the top predators. So, you know, just bioaccumulating a lot of mer mercury, which, you know, makes it a, a, you know, a challenge to export unless it's uh, like five lamprey so that the king can have a, a, a lamprey pie in some ceremonial uh, way. Yeah, sure. There might be a, a use for that. So is it, um, but they suck the blood, right? So it's like they're going straight to the source of the mercury, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of blood and associated tissues. It's like almost a slurry of fish that they get. Blood and fluids and all the good stuff. Yeah. You know, you just like, it's like you stick a straw into a fish and uh, then you just, you know, suck out all the, the deliciousness. Basimatic style. Reminds me of like a Capri Sun. You just stick a, stick a straw on a fish. Yep. All right. Perfect. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> no, we can't move on. We can't move on until we've talked about uh, King Henry the first died in 1135 eating a servant of lampreys. Uh, so he really loved eating sea lampreys, King Henry the uh, first, and then he died. And that's the uh, official cause of death. Too many lamprey. Too many lamprey. <laughs> Too many that had had themselves a slurry, and there's just a wealth of wonderful images right now. Okay, next question for our Dr. Fishes. Um, so in California, bees, bumblebees are considered fish under their Endangered Species Act. This was a recent ruling. So this, from the article, the CESA itself does not define fish, but the law is part of the California Fish and Game Code. The code's definition includes any mollusk, crustacean, invertebrate, or amphibian. All those categories encompass terrestrial and aquatic species, and the state legislature has already approved the listing of at least one land-based mollusk. So, are bees fish? I, I'm going to come down on the side of no, they're not fish. But, uh, you know, certainly 
that case in particular, you know, they just need, they need to change their, their definition uh, to include invertebrates uh, for listing. You know, it's sort of a short-sighted thing. You ask me. I feel like this is a little beyond my pay grade as an ask Dr. Fish, because I am not a lawyer and I am also not a philosopher. Um, You know, what, what makes a fish a fish and legally this is a way for this this bumblebee to try and get protection but i feel like this is a place where science and law may have diverging opinions based on on language but this is tricky right and so it sounds like they're using this as just a, a pathway to get the thing through but is a lamprey a fish yes yeah and you know sea lamprey yeah they are fish i consider them fish, they're fish uh, yeah. you know yeah. If you look at the the phylogenetic tree of lampreys, I mean, they branched off before animals had jaws. So they're really old. So before fish existed, there were lamprey. Um, so yeah, maybe all all fish are lamprey. I don't know. <laughs> are we all lamprey? I don't know. Yeah. And so it's not ask, ask doctor knows about invertebrates. It's ask doctor fish. But I will say that bees are a pretty highly evolved invertebrate too, right? So if you really got into some fun trees, you could you could get into. It. They're pretty far. So our official position is is uh, not a fish, right? I would say bees are not a fish. Yeah, I, I think we can agree on that. And you know, it's it's a funny definition too. Like, Please do not cite me in any California law cases. Right? <laughs> Just in advance. Expert testimony uh, no. offered on nope, nope, Ask nope. Dr. Fish. No, no, there are other people who can weigh in in that way. Okay, so um, does anyone else want to comment on what makes a fish a fish? Katie already sort of said, I don't know, that's a philosophical question. Yeah, I, you know, I look for gills, um, I look for fins, um, lives in the water most of the time. Yeah, some of the other. Other things, you know, that people think of with fish, uh, you know, cold-blooded, they uh, have a backbone. But the fun part about fish, and, you know, this is where we get into the rabbit hole, is there are often exceptions to those rules. Because we say, like, okay, all fish have a backbone. Well, hagfish don't technically have a backbone. Uh, They have, like, a notochord, which, if you're splitting hairs, is not vertebrae um and then you talk about cold-blooded there's some species of fish like tuna that can actually warm their blood a bit so even though we have these sort of hard and fast rules about what makes a fish a fish you always have some weirdos who are the exceptions okay i don't want to go too far down this rat hole but how do tuna warm their blood what is the what is that deal so basically in order to get their really high uh swimming speeds they have like a system of circulation that kind of warms their blood uh, enough that they can maintain these really intense bursts of speed so it's not true like warm-blooded like us generating heat but it's a system of like circulation within their blood that's kind of kind of harvesting that heat from their own bodies yeah. and then recirculating it so that they can keep keep that maintain it but not about Great Lakes fish species. Yeah. No, no, no. That's where we're moving on. Moving on. <laughs> That's okay. We can ask Dr. Fish about any fish. That's cool. Okay. I do believe we have a video question. Stuart. Titus, we are up here at Arcadia. And there are a ton of these little fish 
dead fish on the shore. Yes, indeed. A member of the herring family there. So those are alewives. Um, so typically, you know, we see dead alewives on the beach kind of every year. Uh, this 2022 was actually a bigger a bigger year, at least in Lake Michigan. We saw, like, I, I've, been, I've been here for 10 years, and it's the most I've ever seen uh, living in, uh, in Manitowoc. So uh, they are uh, in, non-native to the Great Lakes, similar to the, the sea lamprey story. They, you know, took advantage of those canals, um, moved upstream, just like the lampreys did, native to the North Atlantic, and uh, spread out through the Great Lakes. And they come into spawn near shore and in tributaries in the spring, early summer, and just have this tendency to die off in the Great Lakes in, in kind of numbers. So uh, not an unusual sight. Uh, this year was particularly stinky, though. Yeah, and I'll just piggyback off what Titus said. You know, we haven't seen big alewife die-offs like this, you know, in recent memory, but back in like the 1960s, 1970s, when alewife numbers were a lot higher in the lakes, uh, particularly in Lake Michigan, there are, you know, pictures and accounts of just piles of dead alewife rolling up on beaches to the point of where in the Chicago area, some of the public beaches had to like have heavy machinery come in and lift up these piles of, of dead, stinky, rotting fish. So, um, Yes, this is a lot of fish, but it, it kind of pales into some of the numbers we've had in, in past decades. Yeah, and the, uh, the you know, to call back to the sea lamprey story and the lake trout story, uh, you know, sea lam- or uh, alewives really were able to take advantage of that. Uh, you know, the extra, t- like losing lake trout in Lake Michigan, lake trout's the top predator, uh, also kind of overfishing and pollution, um, impacted the ciscos and the other kind of competitor fish they would have, the planktivores, um, you know, really allowed alewives to, you know, just their populations exploded in the mid 20th century because no competition, not much predation. And, uh, you know, our number we look at is like 90% of the fish biomass in Lake Michigan was alewives. So that is, you know, that's just not a, not a balanced ecosystem. And, you know, uh, those numbers have declined over time, and part of that's uh, there was pretty intense commercial fishing uh, for a couple decades, uh, where they were harvesting alewives and then turning them into things like uh, fish meal, uh, pet food. The oil was taken off and and taken to Chicago, where it was turned into paint. Uh, so, uh, if your cat really likes your uh, your old um, oil paint, um, maybe it's uh, Maybe it's alewives. And and then those numbers have declined as well because of uh, uh, salmon like to eat them. Trout like to eat them too. Okay. So we're back on asking about questions of about eating, various animals eating fish. And there is a question from Sharon on the YouTube. Um, the YouTube. What was the last fish you ate? Katie first. It's been a little bit of time, but I think I had some smoked salmon. So that wasn't necessarily a local, I, I don't believe it was local salmon, um, which, you know, is kind of a a shameful admission for a Great Lakes scientist to say. But yeah, smoked salmon, I'd say, would, was probably my last. This is, ask Dr. Fish, fi- there are fish outside of the Great Lakes. Fish, there are fish outside that. the Great Lakes. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> okay, over to Titus. What was the last fish you ate? Well, and I actually ate this with Sharon. So um, it was uh, it was Lake Superior whitefish um, from uh, from Red Redcliff Fish Company in uh, Redcliff, Wisconsin, and uh, that was a delicious uh, fish taco. It was incredible, um, and a uh, a kind of smoked uh, farm raised rainbow trout spread uh, as well. So Very nice, yeah. Yum. So, so I can actually say that I'm pretty sure the last fish I ate was also Lake Superior white fish or something like that because it was the mix that you had at Sea Grant Week in Cleveland that I like snuck by your room and was eating some of it. And it was awesome. <laughs> so, I did find out about well, this. thank you, thank you for stopping by and trying that. Yeah, local. I think that was probably Lake Michigan smoked whitefish. But Titus doesn't travel anywhere without Great Lakes fish samples to give out. Always in your carry-on. Why not? You know, let's eat fish. And I'm having trouble speaking because of my cold, but canned tuna yesterday. Lunch, it was good. <laughs> nice. Okay. I think we may have another video question. So look at this. This is from our friends at the uh, Washington State DNR, which is a really fun Twitter follow. And uh, they sent us these cool videos of salmon uh, running up and, and spawning here. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, it's the, the picture of persistence there. Not a very big creek. Well, I was going to say, it's a great way, you know, Monday morning, I feel like that salmon trying to go upstream, getting through my email inbox. That's your fault for checking email. You should never do that. But, uh, I was going to say... <laughs> He's more successful going upstream. We'll just say that. So, um, yeah. So, so I have a question. What do we know about salmon spawning, first of all, in general, right? I mean, you see the video of them jumping up and getting eaten by the bears and all that. But uh, what I remember as a kid is maybe they weren't really sure how salmon made it up to the stream where they were born. What's the latest on that? Because I was a kid, you know, a bit ago at this point. Well, smell, uh, you know, they follow their nose, uh, at least for the, the last part of their journey. And, you know, they like in the oceans, you know, just these huge, huge migrations, you know, thousands of kilometers um, going out in the ocean. But they find their way back and then they follow their nose uh, back to where they came from. Yeah. And in, so they kind of use a bunch of different senses. Like Titus said, the nose is a big one. They sort of imprint on the scent of the stream where they're born to help guide them back. But, you know, when you're out in the ocean, it can be tough to like know a single stream scent. And so there's also been evidence in like the last decade or so that they actually kind of use the earth's magnetic field to help orient them too, similar to migrating birds, um, to at least help get them close enough to where the scent, like Titus said, can then help them get up up to that birth stream how do they how do they sense the magnetic field do you know is that like a lateral line thing or what do they what do they use to, to sense that i think the evidence was that it was a lateral line thing um but i i wouldn't say i know a hundred percent yeah and you know it's really cool like when you look at you know a, a fish coming out of like washington state uh so that fish is going out it's going north and it actually goes up the pacific coast goes, you know, along the Aleutian Islands, you know, circles out in the ocean. And this is like a multi-year thing. It's not like 
these baby fish know where they're going. Like they haven't done this before. They do it like one time and it's this multi-year big loop. And then they, you know, they end up back where they're supposed to be usually at the right time. And then um, they kind of know it's time to go upstream. And that's my stream right there. So do salmon in the Great Lakes do this as well? And where if they do it? So, yeah. So even though, you know, Pacific salmon are not native to the Great Lakes, uh, they were introduced back again, mid 20th century, uh, when a lot of things were happening, as we've talked about. But they do, uh, in many cases, return to streams, either that they were planted in um, from being raised in hatcheries. Uh, there is some wild reproduction. Um, quite a bit of wild reproduction. I was going to say, yeah, quite a bit of wild reproduction that started happening, um, you know, that started. And so we often have tributaries to the Great Lakes, even very small streams uh, that, that salmon make their way up. And I'm sure, Titus, you know, you've got streams in Wisconsin that you probably have some salmon coming up. Uh, I know we have a lot in Michigan. Yeah, definitely. Michigan is, you know, for, for us in Lake Michigan, uh, you know, so we have the stocked fish and what a lot of our fishing clubs do now is they'll, they'll put out these net pens. Um, so instead of stocking directly into the, the rivers, they'll stock these little trout into these pens and then, and then let them sit there for two or three weeks with, with the idea they can get a little bigger, they can release them at a good time and they can imprint a bit more, um, on, uh, on their stocking location. Cause uh, for us in Wisconsin, you know, we really want to look for those fish to come back uh, in fall. Cause right now we've got salmon, you know, coming in and I've, I've gone to kind of a, a fairly small stream just right in, right in town here. And uh, you know, saw some salmon swimming under the bridge, saw some sta- salmon jumping um, out in the water. And that's, that's a small, small tributary, but uh, because we have a lot of agriculture, uh, not a lot of, you know, our, our water quality isn't great. Our spawning habitat isn't great in this part of Wisconsin. Um, a lot of the natural reproduced fish are coming from kind of northern Michigan, uh, the Canadian side of Lake Huron as well. Um, just, you know, if you have lots of forests, clear water, cold water, uh, lots of gravel, that's a, a nice place for a, a salmon to go. And speaking of which, Titus, that was a great uh, segue to Tim's question I see up here on the screen. You know, speaking of salmon, can we talk about the differences between salmon that spawn in Wisconsin's tributaries to Lake Michigan versus Michigan's tributaries? And why are some places successful and not others? And I feel like, Titus, you, you know, really answered a lot of that, that they have habitats that help them, you know, be a little bit more successful in their spawning. And the other thing is not only the habitat itself being nice, quote unquote, but having like cold water, a gravel bottom, but also can the fish access that habitat? Some habitats or some streams are blocked by like low head dams, they're blocked by culverts. And so fish may not be able to access habitat, even if it is good habitat upstream. Uh, So that is a difference too. And I know there's, I don't know the exact distribution of all the dams, but I know a lot of the Great Lakes tributaries have these low head dams and culverts that can prevent fish from getting to habitat. Yeah, I was going to say, can you talk a little bit about different projects that are going on um, around the Great Lakes or in other parts of the world, if you you know of any, to sort of help um, 
help fish get by anyway or things like that. Can you guys share a couple of those? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of work, you know, th- for things like culverts, like, uh, you know, especially with infrastructure, like we've got a lot of in- infrastructure issues right now. There's also a lot of funding for infrastructure. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of groups are identifying where the culverts are. Uh, a lot of them are too small. So uh, if your culvert is too small, the water goes through it too quickly. And that can be a barrier for fish uh, passage. So identifying those and then replacing them with a, a, a better um, a, a better type of culvert that's more suited to the stream. Um, you know, it's, it's also a challenge. It's a trade-off. Like we can in, improve fish passage for de- desirable species, but you also don't want to open up the habitat for things like round gobies that like to move upstream for the sea lamprey that we've talked about. Uh, you know, they, they like similar habitats too. So uh, it's definitely, it's, it's a balance between, you know, what we're protecting. And, and because you've seen those pictures of salmon jumping, like a low head dam uh, that could block a lamprey uh, is usually not a barrier for a trout or a salmon. They can just jump right over that. Right. And for some of the bigger dams in some places, you know, if they're older dams, there's talk of, you know, is this worthwhile to remove? But in other cases, if a dam's still functioning, not as much in the Great Lakes, there's a few places, but like I'm thinking on the West Coast, the building of fish ladders that help salmon get past these higher dams that they can't jump over. Um, and even for other species, I was just reading about the other day uh, up in Titus's neck of the woods, the, uh, there's a elevator to help lake sturgeon past dams um, in, uh, I want to say the Mononymy River, but, uh, and then, so I just, I love the visual also of a elevator for sturgeon to help them get to habitat above a dam. So there, there are ways that for dams that can't be removed to help fish pass. And Katie, if you, they swim up, they swim up to the door and they actually have to hit it with their snout. No. Hit the up button. No, that's not true. No, it's not true, Stuart. But it would be, it would be fun. Yeah, there's an attendant in the elevator that asks, you know, which floor. Or, yeah. 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 And like, and that, that is a cool example. And those are like, those are functioning like power generating dams. So not something we're going to remove, but how can we get those sturgeon to, uh, you know, habitat upstream? And they, they will actually truck them in trucks. They put them into these trucks and take them up past another dam too. So that opens up more habitat. Um, but with dams, especially, I, there's a lot of really old dams that just aren't used anymore. And, you know, some of these, it's like, well, you can spend a million dollars to like repair it f- for a dam that hasn't been used as a like a mill dam for over a hundred years, or you can remove it for half that. So um, some interesting discussions there uh, for, say, if you live on one of these ponds, you like the pond, but who wants to pay for that? What was the name of that? Uh, what was the name of that river? It's the Menominee River. Do, 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 do. What? <laughs> do, 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 do. Anyway, okay. So um, this is this is really cool, and um, I really enjoyed thinking about who would be the attendant and things like that. In the, if they were in the elevator, I think it would be it would be a white it would be a white sucker uh, wearing that little <laughs> um, attendance hat. I think. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so let's switch to a different question because there is a question on YouTube and we also had a 
there's a huge story in the news right now that there was a cheating scandal in a walleye tournament where some people were actually putting weights into their fish. And this is video that we cannot play on, on yeah. that <laughs> Yes. So um, there's a question in here that I'm a, a little bit, I'm not going to read, but why do people cheat at fishing tournaments? Big money. Big money. Yeah, it's actually, for someone who's not like in the professional fishing world, which probably not too many of us are, but like there is a, it's surprising. There's a lot of money involved. There's uh, the ability, like winning boats. Uh, there's sponsorship deals. So there is a lot at stake in a lot of these competitions. Um, so you can, you can see why it'd be attractive to win. Okay, so they cheated by adding lead weights. How many lead weights, or I mean, I don't know if you guys know the weight of lead, um, but how much weight would you need to add to make a difference and put you over the top, do you think? Because I'm thinking like when I went fishing with my dad, we put like quarter ounce lead weights was like this big. Is that enough or these need some big suckers in there? Yeah, I mean, usually it's, you know, it's a total weight you know, for like, you got your five fish and, you know, the highest weight wins. So, uh, you know, the more weight you can add, the, the, it kind of bumps you over that, but you also don't want to be too obvious about it. Right. You gotta be, you know, it's gotta seem plausible. You well, so this is my this question. Carolyn won't ask this, like... but I will. And I apologize again for my voice. Let's say hypothetically, I knew somebody who wanted to enter a fishing tournament and win it by cheating and, you know, win $300,000 of boats and prizes and everything purely hypothetically. What would be a better way to do this so that I or whomever wouldn't get caught? Using your fish knowledge. Using secret fish knowledge. Well, I would say at least in, in other competitions, um, what some things that come up as common cheating strategies are typically like fishing outside the, the bounds of the tournament. So maybe you catch a fish from a lake that's outside the bounds of the tournament where the fish typically grow bigger. Uh, that's one way of doing it. Another way is uh, sort of having a plant. So you might have like a friend in another boat hold hand over a larger fish that they caught earlier, like outside of the time limits of the, the thing. So ones that don't necessarily involve changing your fish catch, but uh, but changing it by adding weight is what I mean. Yeah. And what I, what I would do is and a lot of the, this is inspired by Carl Hyacinth's uh, book, double whammy, which is actually about cheating and bass fishing uh, in Florida, uh, which is a fun book if you like Carl Hyacinth. Um, but what I would do, I would take, I would get, you know, some, some, the biggest wall I can find. I might grow them a bit in an indoor uh, aquaculture mm. situation, really grow them out, really get them fat. And then I would, you know, plant them on the bottom and then I would either use an R, uh, some kind of ROV uh, to release them or I would get a, a scuba diver to hook them up to my uh, my lure. And again, this is not a, uh, uh, we are not advocating for this. This is just uh, <laughs> hypothetically something you could do. Because we're very intelligent people. All right, so now I have so many questions. Um, so how long would the person need to stay down there to let your walleye go? <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta coordinate this thing ahead of time. You gotta you know make sure you and your your dive buddy are on the same page. 
Right. And you can't catch all your fish in the same place. You couldn't just like pull up five fish from the same location. You'd have to have kind of multiple areas and maybe this uh, scuba diver would have to head over and you would want to have a rebreather system because you don't want to have the telltale bubbles coming up. So you really, you got to have this, uh, you know, it's got to be pretty, pretty subtle. And you also don't want, you know, with the technology of fish finders today, um, I assume that if somebody else was fishing there, they would see this, you know, the image would pop up of like this scuba diver uh, swimming underneath this uh, competitor's boat. So you would have to avoid that as well. And maybe you would, uh, oh, you could actually drop something down so that they could tow the diver to another place. See, now we're starting yeah. to get somewhere. Now we're starting to get somewhere. That's good. Yeah, that's, yeah. And um, and you'd probably have to split a bunch of your win with this person or these right. people, right? Okay, so I do have one other hey, question. For Walt- $50,000 from a $300,000 $300, prize? Uh, it seems like a. it's just a smart investment. Not advocating, though. No, not advocating, but $50,000 is not advocating. nothing to- yeah. Um, so one other question about walleye specifically, if you wanted to grow them, you know, say you wanted to grow walleye locally, um, what would you do to make them grow really big, really fat, really fast? Well, I, you know, oh, I can, I can actually just, I'll throw this up to some of our research we're funding because we're actually uh, funding some research from the the Northern Aquaculture Demonstration Facility up in uh, Bayfield, Wisconsin, uh, who they're actually looking at indoor production in recirculating systems of walleye. So, you know, you you would dial in the right temperature and there's like an optimal temperature where things will grow and continue to grow. You could probably manipulate the uh, daylight so that you could keep them growing so they wouldn't have that kind of winter. Uh, Some you know, photo period and then you, I like it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you just pump them in with enough food and they would just balloon up to be like the, the largest, uh, the largest walleye anyone's ever seen, which is also a risk. You don't want to do that because, you know, you could, uh, if, if you caught this world record walleye, people are going to start scrutinizing it and, you know, probably pull tissue samples or, you know, you could actually tell that it's been fed, uh, fish feed probably. And these dudes, and you have to pass a polygraph, right? And these dudes about got, uh, they about got a whooping, I guess we'll say. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, the audience was not happy, to say the least. It's three hundred fifty thousand dollars. I suppose that's I suppose that's uh, fair though. And I will say, you know, we're kind of wrapping things back together because if you're talking about changing the daylight, um, then you're back to how do you stop things from moving around and stuff like that. But okay, so unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our hour. This has been a lovely chat, and we've gotten to ask some questions, and we hope to do this again in the future. But to to wrap up, I think we were going to play 20 questions is we that were, right Stuart? yep we're gonna play 20 questions okay. and really a lot of people would say that it's kind of like a mano a mano get together you know like one against another i think uh wouldn't they yes they would yes they people would. do say that yes yeah <laughs> Um, I am going, I'm going to give Titus and Katie a second 
to consider the fish that we are going to use. Consider the fish. Yes. And then I am going to flip a coin to see who will go first. I will oh, be back with a coin in just a moment. Yeah. Better be a loony. So my kids normally have a bunch of money around. But, okay, so here we go. This is actually going to be, I'm going to flip this button. If the lake comes up, then Titus will go first. If the pin comes up, then Katie will go first. All right. Okay. It is the, it was the pin. <laughs> it was the pin. Yes. So, Katie, actually, no, you get the choice, Katie. Do you want to go first or second? Oof. Actually, you know, I'll go second. I'll let Titus go. I have a fish. You have a fish. And we'll go, we'll go Carolyn, Katie, Stewart. And then if anybody chimes in with a question from the live audience, we will chime in with that. Does it have a backbone? Yes. Does it live in all all five of the Great Lakes? Uh, yes. Probably. High, high certainty of that. High certainty of that. That's good enough for me. Does it inhabit the benthos? Uh, not exclusively, but it could be found there. Do people like to fish for it and eat it? No. Does it eat other fish? It does not. Could somebody find it and eat it like on a hot dog bun? <laughs> uh, it is possible, but I highly unlikely. Is it a fish that other fish eat and it's important to them? Yes. Is it native to the Great Lakes? Yes, it is. Is it bigger than a hot dog bun? It is smaller than a hot dog bun. So how many more questions do we have? You know, I've honestly lost count. Um, I think we're at nine. So I think we have 11 more questions. I will give you a size. Uh, maximum size uh or sort of an average size would be two inches long so total length or um, total length and maximum would be about three and a half that would be the largest on the largest end we'll count that as a question thank you though all right so now we're at 10 does it live in like the coastal areas and go up streams and stuff like that yeah, you'd be you'd probably find it coastally or in small streams. Do people harvest it for bait? They do. Well, not really. Not really. Okay. Yeah, it's not what I would call a. Yeah, you wouldn't see it in a, a bait shop. You're not going to see it in a bait shop. Okay, cool. No. It has. Does it have teeth? It does have teeth. I think most most fish do, though. Mm. Well, you can hold a bass by the thumb, right? Yeah, but it's got teeth in there. Oh. They're just not really. It do, it does not have big, sharp teeth. So could I hold it by my thumb? I guess would be the yeah. Yes, although it would be if really it were, hard to get yeah, a tiny thumb. In thumb. Mouth. I was gonna say it's really tiny. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. It's no a Donald small fish. All right. I will. I will give you another hint. It is not a minnow or shiner. That all. Dang it! All right. <laughs> another question. That counts as a question. We got six left. I was going to ask something about it being a shiner, so um, you, I'll skip to you, Katie. Does it typically have stripes? Um, not really. Modeled, okay. modeled coloration. Modeled. And it can be, okay. it can be darker during spawning. 
spawning time okay. for the males. Does it have a seasonal migration pattern? Not really. All right, down to four questions. Uh, another, another. It does. If you were to pick this up, or if you, if you were a predator, um, there are some. It does have some uh, methods of deterring predation. Pointy, pointy methods. Is it a stickleback? Oh, it is a stickleback. Which stickleback is it? Oh, we got three guesses. All right. I was going to say, that was a strategic question. (laughs) And I've already, one of my answers, uh, Will, has already eliminated two, so. Oh, all right. Now, hold on. So if you have a guess, we have the drum roll situation, I think. Let me just, uh, there it is. All right. right, Do you have a guess, uh, Katie? I think so. All right. Here we go. After the drum roll. Is it the nine spine stickleback? So close, Katie. So close, but no. incorrect. Wah, wah, wah. All right. Um, what's another stickleback, Katie? Is it the four spine? Four spine stickleback? It is not. That is incorrect. That is an invasive wah, species in wah, the Great Lakes. Wah. I know it's an invasive one. Oh man, you've got so one think- native. Stickleback. One more. Is it the Brook Stickleback? You got it, Brook Stickleback. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, so nice that's a point. Katie. Nice a point work. for Katie. Uh, good. Oh, All right, that now. was a rough one. Yeah, that's, we got it. It wasn't rough. We got it. All right, Titus, your turn. Or no, Katie, you think of one. Titus, lead us off. Well, so yeah, so I'm. I'm thinking of it so okay so to keep it fair we'll go carolyn titus stewart for questions carolyn titus stewart so that we don't our inadequacies don't cause you guys problems okay does it have a backbone (laughs) yes it does uh does it have a adipose fin no is it bigger than a hot dog bun Yes, as an adult, but yeah. Yeah. Does it live in all five of the Great Lakes? I believe so, yes. Uh, Is it native to the Great Lakes? Yes. Is it a relatively fast swimmer? In short bursts. It's a tuna, I know it. (laughs) Those Great Lakes tuna. Do people like to eat it and fish for it? Fish for it, yes. But they don't eat it. Carolyn stuck two questions in. That was interesting. Not, not typically. Does it have any barbels? No, it does not. Is it uh, have? Uh, uh, is it brightly colored? Uh, I wouldn't say really. No. Is it a type of bass? Yes. Oh. <laughs> All right. I feel like I feel like we could get this with ten questions left. So let me know. I if think you, have you guys are. Uh, coloration in the eye is it? Does it have a reddish eye? Uh, not really. Ish. No. Okay. Um, 
does it have a series of black horizontal stripes down the side? Not really a well, not really a series. Uh, maybe slightly, depending on color. Can it get really awkward? If you run your finger, do you catch it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably yes. Yes. Does the uh, up, does the jaw uh, reach behind the eye or in front of the eye? Oh, behind the eye. Behind the eye. All right. I think I. I think. I think, I think you guys might know it. I, I think it's. I think it's been a minute, but it is my turn. Uh, so let's. Is it a largemouth bass? It is indeed. Oh, there was no. That's I thought there was going to be a sound effect, but yeah. That was. That <laughs> no, was that's just saying, us going. Yay! <laughs> that's you saying woo from the last time we did this, or maybe Carol. <laughs> <laughs> maybe <whatever. laughs> You it's got like, it. Booing. It is a largemouth bass. All right. So I think right. rather. So my suggestion, rather than do a runoff, is we just keep a mm-hmm. running tally throughout the life of this. So right now it's one oh, one. Yes. One one. It is, yeah. but then that we run into problems for the big finish because where people are supposed to get thirty seconds of uh, soapbox time to promote whatever fish related thing they want to. So since we got Katie's in fewer guesses than we got Titus's, that means Titus, you get the soapbox thirty seconds. Once I get you set up into the solo view, take it away, Titus. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, It is fall. That means it is spawning time for a lot of trout and salmon, a lot of other species in the Great Lakes. Go out, find your local stream and go check out some uh, spawning fish. You can watch them swimming. It's really cool. You can get up close um, and, and see them. Find a dam that's close to the lake. You'll probably see some salmon there. Excellent. So we're going to do this again in, um, in December. Um, so please watch social media. Um, we're going to be reaching out to a couple of different groups to see if we can ask other questions. But uh, Doctors Fish, thank you so much for joining us today. We had a great time asking you questions and picking your brains. So That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. And Carolyn, do you want to read the credits? I sure can. Ask Dr. Fish is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, Wisconsin Sea Grant, and Gobi Dog Media. The show is produced and hosted by Stuart Carlton, Carolyn Foley, Dr. Fish Katie O'Reilly, and Dr. Fish Titus Salhunt. The podcast version of the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and we encourage you to check her workout at aspiringrobot.com. The live version of the show is joyously unedited, and we hope we didn't screw anything up too badly. If you have questions for the Doctor's Fish, Doctor's Fishes, send an email, well, I can argue that one. Send an email to askdoctorfish at gmail.com. Use the Twitter hashtag, hashtag AskDrFish, or call our hotline at 765-496-IISG. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you live on YouTube and Facebook at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, on the second Monday of every even month. So the next time is the 12th month of 2022. In between now and then, if you have this fish questions, science questions, or life questions, just ask Dr. Fish.